please take your seats. It's good to see you in the house of God on this beautiful day. Nice to see the weather change. And um, tonight at the revival service, straight after this meeting, I will be ministering and uh, we're going to be very much ministering on the theme of the day of Pentecost. And we're going to be praying for people to be filled with the Spirit, not just for the first time with speaking in tongues, but also we're going to pray that God will release a powerful anointing amongst us so that we can do everything that God's called us to do together. As many of you know, we're in a series right now on the greatest sermon that was ever preached, the Sermon on the Mount by Jesus himself. And uh, we'll be extending this series um, into June and possibly even into July because there's so much teaching here for our lives. If you want to do a little bit more detailed study, there's many books out there, but I'm recommending two for this series. And the first one, it was only published, I think, late last year, and it was R.T. Kendall's book on the Sermon on the Mount, which is very very helpful for going further in detail to this subject. And also our own senior minister, Colin Dye, uh, he is one of his Sword of the Spirit series deals with the whole of the Sermon on the Mount. It's called The Rule of God. And um, that's an excellent book, a lot smaller than R.T. Kendall's. So uh, depending on how much you study you want to do, you can go for the thick one or the thin one. But they're both very helpful um, along with what I'm teaching you on these Sundays. If you've got your Bibles, please turn with you. It's good to have your Bibles open for this. Turn with, with, to uh, Matthew chapter 5. If you miss a Sunday, remember all of these teachings are put up on the internet by Monday afternoon, latest Tuesday. So you can always, if, if you're joining us for the first time, uh, you can go back and see some of the things that we've taught before. And it's important that you do, as much as possible, uh, see, see every episode of this series that we're doing together because this is one sermon that we're looking at. And one of the things that we say about the Sermon of the Mount is that people often don't study it correctly because they don't study it as a sermon. They just rush into a passage or a verse here or quote a bit there and they haven't properly sat back and said, well, wait a second, it's a whole sermon. Uh, I, would, I wouldn't like it if you kept you know, walking in and out of my sermon and just taking a little bit here. I'd want you to hear the whole sermon. There's an introduction, and there's a middle, there's an end. And it's the same with the Sermon on the Mount. And I like just to recap so that you... Because you have to step back from the Sermon on the Mount before you step into the Sermon on the Mount. And every time we look at a portion of the Sermon on the Mount, what we first have to do is step back remember the whole, or we will get lost in the minute of what we're looking at. The Sermon on the Mount starts here in chapter 5, and I'm going to read it. It starts with an introduction with what we call the Beatitudes. And these are the characteristics of the Spirit-filled Christian. This is, this is what a Spirit-filled Christian should be like. Chapter 5, verse 2. Then Jesus opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. 
Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is Jesus' description of the spirit-filled disciple. And the rest of the Sermon on the Mount is extending and explaining these Beatitudes, all right? When you start a sermon, normally you might have an introduction. And in the introduction, you explain what the rest of the sermon is going to be like. Well, Jesus in these Beatitudes, he is now in the rest of the Sermon on the Mount going to explain how you live this life. Because it's wonderful to say, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. But how does that happen in practice? Jesus, it's wonderful, these Beatitudes, but what about real life? How would I put these types of characteristics into action? And that's what the rest of the sermon is about. When we finish the Beatitudes at verse 10, uh, we go into the reaction of the world to that type of spirit-filled disciple. And then we look from verse 13 to 16 at the Christian's function in the world. How does a spirit-filled disciple that has these beatitude characteristics function in the world? Well, we're salt and we're light. And we're to let our good work shine so that people can glorify their Father in heaven. And then we came last week to a new section, verse 17 of chapter 5, saying, Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. And I taught you last week on the righteousness that exceeds the law. How Jesus here said, I've not come to abolish the law. I've come to fulfill it. Jesus lived the law 24-7 right throughout his law. And the law was a temporary measure until the seed Christ would come. And the law was crying out for someone to fulfill it. The law was crying out for someone to take its exam and pass the grade. And Jesus took the examination of the law. The law examined him every moment of his life. And on the cross when he said, it is finished, it meant that he had fulfilled the law. He passed the rigorous demands of the law. And the law demanded an absolute perfect righteousness in every respect. And Jesus passed the exam. He got more than 100% if that was possible. And you know what? Jesus passed the law's exam, but he gave us the grade. It's like he put your name on the examination sheet when he lived the law all his life. So everything that Jesus did, he did for us. And so he fulfilled the law. So those that are, are, are now... Christians, we don't have to live under the law or its demands anymore. We have a new life, free from the law. We live led by the Spirit, based on the commandment to love. That's all that we need. Now, of course, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus was really addressing two types of people. He was addressing, at that time when he preached the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus was still under the law, wasn't he? He had not fulfilled the law Yet, had he? He said, look, the law will be fulfilled and it'll be fulfilled before heaven and earth pass away. It was fulfilled when he died on the cross and rose again. So he's speaking to those that are under law. That's why he said, you know, not one jot or tittle will by any means pass from the law until all is fulfilled in verse 18. And that nobody and that people should teach the law and live by the law. He was speaking to those 
that were with him and his disciples for that period of time. For the law was not fulfilled at that particular moment. There was two or three more years to go. But this sermon is, of the mount is primarily addressed to spirit-filled disciples. Because you can't live the Sermon on the Mount through human effort. I said in the first session that we ever had, that some people look at the Sermon on the Mount and they pick things out like, you know, love your enemies. And they, they pick things out about, about doing good to one another and turning the other cheek. And they say, oh, these are good moral laws for everybody. If everybody had these attitudes, Christians and non-Christians, the world would be a better place. And sometimes you hear non-Christian politicians quoting from the Sermon on the Mount. But they're quoting totally out of context. In order to live the Sermon on the Mount, you have to be poor in spirit. And in order to be poor in spirit, you need to know your need of God. You need to know that you need a savior, you need saving, you must be born again, and you must live by the power of the Spirit, not by your own efforts. That's why Jesus, I'm moving a little bit into what I'm doing tonight, but that's why Jesus said to the disciples, stay in Jerusalem until you're clothed with power on high. He told them to go into all the world and make disciples, but he said, but I don't want you going until you've received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Because you won't be able to do what I'm calling you to do without the anointing. And isn't it true, even Jesus, who was the Son of God, waited 30 years until he received the baptism of the Holy Spirit when John baptized him in water. He, didn't do, he could have, he was God, but he chose not to minister until he received the Spirit. So the Sermon on the Mount... Uh, R.T. Kendall, he says, the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' teaching on the Holy Spirit. That's how R.T. Kendall sums up the whole sermon. It is Jesus' doctrine of the Holy Spirit. None of it can be done without the power of the born-again experience and the Holy Spirit working in us with the fruit of the Spirit. Martin Lloyd-Jones, another great preacher, R.T. Kendall was his successor, he sums up the Sermon on the Mount and says that the Sermon on the Mount is simply an explanation of Jesus' command, love one another as I have loved you. So what I'm doing is I'm pulling you back a little bit before we go in a bit. It is the doctrine of the Holy Spirit from Jesus and it is an explanation of the one command that Jesus gave to us, a new command that we love one another. And so, when we come to the section I want to teach you today, we're going to get into what, what, I, what I have entitled today's sermon, The Letter and the Spirit. The Letter and the Spirit. In verse 20, let's read together. For I say to you, of chapter 5, For I say to you, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will be, by no means enter the kingdom of God. And of course, people hearing that would have been amazed that Jesus would have said that. The common people, the poor people, the normal people. You're asking us to have a righteousness that exceeds that of the Pharisees and the scribes. But surely, Jesus, they're the best that we've got. They're the ones that spend their life studying your word and how to live your word. I mean, if you remember the Apostle Paul, he was a Pharisee amongst Pharisees. And you're asking us, the common people that are making mistakes all the time, to, to have a righteousness better than the Pharisees? 
The very word Pharisee meant separated, consecrated, righteous. It was the Pharisees that were telling the people how to live and saying, you must be like us and, and, and model yourselves on us. We're the best. And then Jesus said, you have, must have a righteousness that exceeds. Well, the righteousness that exceeds the law is the righteousness by faith, isn't it? There's a righteousness that comes from the law, but no human being except Jesus himself could ever fulfill that righteousness. But there is also a righteousness, a right standing before God where we're declared not guilty simply because we believe in Jesus. You know, I don't have my own righteousness, and neither do you if you're a believer. I've given up trying to have my own righteousness. I could never live holy with the commands of God and make the grade to get into heaven. No, I have Jesus' righteousness by faith. When God looks at me, he doesn't look at my righteousness. He looks at his son's righteousness because I am clothed in the righteousness of God. And righteousness means to be able to stand before God clean and not guilty. And this is Jesus' gift to all that believe in him. But also this righteousness is going to work in our lives. And Jesus is speaking how to live the righteous, spirit-filled life. And so we're going to find... In the next verses, right up to verse 43 of chapter 5, we're actually looking at a section that shows us the difference between the righteousness of the Pharisees under the law and the righteous living of the spirit-filled believer under grace. It's going to be a comparison. Jesus says you must have righteousness that exceeds the Pharisees. And we're like, well, how can that be possible? He'll say, let me give you some examples. When we'll see uh, six statements of these examples of a righteous living that surpasses that of the Pharisees. Uh, in 20, verse 21, he'll say, thou shalt not kill. And he'll address that. And then in verse 27, he'll, he'll address the sh that thou shalt not commit adultery. In verse 31, the third thing he'll look at is divorce. So he'll look at murder, adultery, divorce in verse 31. In verse 33, he'll speak about the use of oaths. In verse 38, number 5, he'll speak about an eye for an eye and a, 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 and a tooth for a tooth. And in verse 43, he'll speak about loving your neighbor and hating your enemy. So he'll be looking at the practical, how do you live the spirit-filled life with murder and anger, with adultery and lust, with divorce and marriage relationships, with oaths, with an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, and loving your neighbor and hating your enemies. He's going to look and demonstrate how a spirit-filled Christian would live these in comparison to the Pharisees at that time. And remember, these are still examples of the Beatitudes. They're still examples of the blessed are those that. And so as we go through these, we, I want you to think, oh, yeah, that reminds me of the Beatitude that I read. It, it's, it's how you would, you would be merciful in that situation. Blessed are the merciful. Oh, yeah, I can see this in these Six, these six statements that we're going through together. Principles. Now, these are principles of spirit-filled living, okay? Don't think, I've mentioned this a lot, but don't think we're about now to have a new laws. You have heard it said to you, do not commit murder, but I say to you, do not have anger in your heart. Oh, another law. It's not, it's a principle. It's an example of spirit-filled living. And that is very different to laws and regulations. The Sermon on the Mount is not about laws. 
regulations. It's not a new law. It is simply examples and principles of how you will live if you're led by the Spirit and motivated by love. So, he says in verse 21, you have heard it said to those of old, you shall not commit murder. And whoever murders will be in judgment, will, will, whoever murders will be in danger of judgment. But I say to you, whoever is angry with his brother without a cause and in, is in, shall be in danger of judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Rakar, shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says you fool shall be in danger of hell fire. Now, I've entitled this sermon, The Letter Kills, But the Spirit Gives Life. And we find that in 2 Corinthians. Because we've got the letter of the law. You have heard it said, and he goes back to that again and again, what the law of Moses said about murder, about adultery, about divorce, about eye for an eye. You have heard it said, the letter of the law. But when Jesus says, I say to you... He's not speaking about external laws, but he's speaking about heart motivations. What's going on on the inside of us. You see, I said last week that the Pharisees, um, they lived an outward righteousness. They conformed to the laws on the outward, but on the inside, they weren't walking with God. I mean, Jesus himself said to the Pharisees, you whitewashed tombs. In other words, on the outside, they looked all clean and holy. And on the outside, it looked like they were doing everything that they should be doing. He said, you whitewashed tombs, clean on the outside, but on the inside are dead men's bones. It's death. And so Jesus recognized that the Pharisees of his day were, were obeying laws, but their heart was far from God. They listened to him, uh, they listened to Jesus, but they didn't have a heart relationship with God. And you will see throughout this section that Jesus is speaking about the issues of the heart. Matthew chapter 15 verse 19 sets up these uh, principles very well. Matthew 15 verse 19 says, Out of the heart proceeds evil thoughts, Murders, we're going to look at that. Adulteries, we're going to look at that. Fornications, thefts, false witnesses, and blasphemy. So Jesus is saying, look, we've got to go to the root of the problem here. The Pharisees were living an external righteousness, looking good on the outside, but inside they were lawbreakers in their hearts. And so that's important for us to look at. Also, the law that Jesus is looking at, he's looking at in a negative way. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not divorce. But Jesus develops this because it's not just about not doing. It's about pursuing righteousness. Isn't one of the Beatitudes, blessed are those that hunger and thirst for righteousness. It's not blessed, for the, blessed are those who just don't do what they're not meant to do. There's a progression. There's an active desiring of righteousness, a pursuit of righteousness, not just a blind obedience to external laws. These are a development of a... If you want to know how to develop your character, then you will find in these examples um, some very helpful remarks. It's interesting that Jesus, in verse 21, decided to start with his first illustration and example of a righteousness that surpasses those of the Pharisees or the law or the letter. 
Um, the sixth commandment. And the sixth commandment is that you shall not murder. And Jesus addresses the external commandment, don't commit murder. But then he says, but I say to you. It's fascinating that Jesus would say that phrase, but I say to you. Because that is showing you the authority of the Son of God. That he could say, the law says this, but I say to you. You would think the Pharisees would be saying, well, who the heck are you? We know the law came from Moses. And this, this, well, through Moses, it came from God through the agency of angels to Moses who passed it to the people. Uh, And who are you to start talking about the law in a better way than the law? But Jesus, of course, said in Gospel of John that the law and the prophets pointed to him. He, that he is greater than the law and the prophets. The whole of the Old Testament is there to prepare and to point us towards Jesus. Jesus is greater than the law. He's greater than the Old Testament. And so when he says, but I say to you, he is saying, you have heard in the old righteousness, don't commit murder. But I say to you, whoever's angry with his brother shall be in danger of judgment. Can you see straight away how Jesus has taken an external command and internalized it? Because the Pharisees, um, they would say, yeah, we won't, we won't commit murder. We won't do that. But Jesus says, all right, maybe you won't commit the external act of, of murder. But what is going on in your heart? What is going on in your heart? And so Jesus is internalizing. He's saying it's not just enough to pay outward obedience. I remember when I was teaching on the law, and it's in my book, No More Law. That I described the law, well, Paul describes the law in Galatians as a teacher or a tutor. And the idea is the law came in to bring an unruly class under control. And the law came in because to reveal what was wrong, what was sin, and to restrain it. And so the law came in to this unruly class like a super teacher sent to sort out an unruly class. And the teacher comes in and says, right, I'm the new teacher And it's very simple. These are my rules. Um, I don't care if you like the rules or you don't like the rules. I'm not really interested in what you like on the inside or what you feel about them. But these are the rules. If you do them, you won't get punished. But if you don't do the rules, then you will be punished. And someone shouts, we'll just do whatever we want. You're in detention for four days. Bang. And so very soon that teacher, through rules, externally brings that class into um, order. And then somebody walks in and says, what a wonderful class. How you've turned this classroom around. Nobody speaks. Nobody moves. Everybody does exactly what you say. What a wonderful teacher. But we all know what they're doing. It's fear of punishment. On the inside, that class is as unruly as ever. And if that tutor should walk away and the old teacher comes back, do you think they they will still be in order? No, because now they know they can mess around again. Well, this is the righteous. This is the best that the righteousness of the law could do. So the Pharisees were externally obedient. They weren't going to commit murder. But in their hearts, they were hating. They were angry. And Jesus said that it's from the heart. The the heart of the problem in humanity, the heart of the problem is the problem in the heart. Someone once said... Um, anger is what makes us lose our temper and pride is what keeps it there. If we could deal with the issues of the heart, 
there never would be any violence or anger or murder. Now, it's interesting that Jesus would choose this as the first illustration, the command not to murder, and, and that Jesus saying, look, anger, wrong anger in the heart. Now, there is an anger that comes from God. There is a holy anger or a holy wrath. We're not talking about that. We're talking about an anger that comes from bitterness and hatred towards another human being. If you come with me to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 31, I want, I want Ephesians 4, 31, I want to show you something. Because remember, this is a principle. The type of spirit-filled person that we're talking about is somebody that's blessed is the pure in heart, is someone that's blessed is the merciful. Do you think somebody who, is, who has the characteristic of merciful is angry with people? That's a characteristic of them. Do you think that? No, somebody that is merciful is going to be able to deal with the situation of anger in their lives. Now, Ephesians chapter 4. And verse 31, well, verse 30, Ephesians chapter 4, 30, look. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all ma malice. And be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God has forgiven you. Can you see how when Paul says, don't grieve the Holy Spirit, he could talk about many things. I suppose there's many different attitudes that could, and actions that could grieve the Holy Spirit. But what is the first attitude that Paul goes to that grieves the Holy Spirit? He says, let all bitterness and anger and wrath be put away from you. So Jesus, the first thing he speaks about in a righteousness that exceeds the Pharisees, is the treatment of other people, anger in your heart. And the first thing that grieves the Holy Spirit, according to Ephesians 4, is anger. This shows that God is highlighting how inappropriate angry behavior is for the Spirit-filled disciple. We're unpackaging what uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones says is a sermon, unpackaging love your neighbor as yourself or love one another. Is anger an appropriate emotion? We're talking about unrighteous anger. Is anger an appropriate attitude for a spirit-filled disciple? Is anger an appropriate attitude for somebody that is cultivating uh, the, the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, patience, peace. Is anger an appropriate attitude for someone that is living the Beatitudes or seeking to become the Spirit-filled disciple? No, anger is one of the surest ways to grieve the Spirit. And remember, the Pharisees obeyed the law or disobeyed the law. But the Spirit-filled believer obeys the Spirit or grieves the Spirit. You see, the Pharisees followed the letter. The Pharisees' external commands. Didn't matter if they hated somebody in their heart. They'd just make sure they didn't get to the place where they outwardly murdered them. But the inward heart, the matters of the heart, the matters of the spirit, not to grieve the spirit. If we're to flow with the spirit and follow the spirit, we're not going to hold grudges and bitterness and unforgiveness and anger in our heart. 
that those things may arise in our lives, but we will soon deal with them by the Spirit and by grace and by prayer because that is not the Spirit-filled life. And uh, if we look this a little bit closer, Jesus says, um, you, shall, you shall not murder, never murders will be in, in danger of judgment. But I say to you, whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be da- in danger of judgment. And then he explains what this type of anger is like, how it might manifest. And he uses two, Greek, two um, Aramaic words here that may or may not be in your particular translation of the Bible. And, and the first one is, in verse 22, he says, And whoever says to his brother, Rakar, R-A-C-A. Who's got that in their Bible? Just lift your hand. Rakar, the word Rakar. Um, others of you, what do you have? Pardon? Everybody has Rakar in their Bible. Okay. Idiot, thank you. Idiot. So it's translated in some versions as idiot. The word rakar, I suppose you could put it in idiot, but really the word rakar means this, worthless and empty. Worthless and empty. So this manifestation of anger, which Jesus says is like the murder in the heart, is calling somebody rakar, worthless or empty. Now, that makes sense. When you think about the outward act of murder, which is... Taking somebody's life from the earth, uh, taking, when, when you murder somebody, you, you are removing somebody's life from earth, aren't you? And when you murder somebody, how much worth are you putting on the person that you murder? None. None. Isn't it true that where murder is rife in the world today, wherever there is a lot of murder, where the murder levels are high... Is it fair to say that life is cheap? That, 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 the, that, the worth, that, that life isn't worth much? You say, oh, you better be careful if you go to that part of the nation or you go to that part of the particular city. You better be careful. Why? Because life is not worth much. And that's why there's so many murders. Because you wouldn't commit murder if you felt that that person's life was worthwhile. In fact, what you're doing is saying by that murder that this person's life isn't worth anything. It's not even worth being on the earth. And that's why you feel that you can remove it. And so that's the outward act of removing someone's life from the earth. Of of actually believing that somebody is so worthless that you can murder them to whatever ends would please you. But Jesus is saying we're not just talking about outward murder, but we're going deeper to the root of things. And we're talking about an inward attitude of anger towards somebody. And that is like somebody that, that, that treats somebody in their heart and says, Rakar. In other words, you're worthless. In other words, I don't care about you. I'm, I, I, I hate you. I hate what you're doing to me. I hate how you are. And this hatred, when somebody has hatred and anger in their hearts for somebody else... You don't think much of that person. And you may not murder them physically, but there's other ways of trying to murder someone. You can murder somebody's reputation. You can gossip about someone in order to take away their value in the eyes of one. Oh, do you know what, do you know what that person is like? Do you know what they've done? Do you know, do you know what they've done in the past? Oh, they, you haven't heard, have you? Well, let me tell you a few things about this person. And by the time you've finished telling that person, in the eyes of that person, you've murdered them. Murdered their reputation, their character. And the person goes away thinking, what an awful person 
You've just described what a horrible person. What have you done? You've basically said, this is a worthless person, and I want you to think that they're worthless as well. This is an empty person, a worthless person. And so that is not the attitude, is it, of a peacemaker? Blessed are the peacemakers. They'll be angry at you and think you're worthless. That's not blessed is the merciful, is it? So anger problems, bitterness and hatred that stem in the heart. You might, and some, you know, sometimes people with hatred and anger in their heart, you wouldn't know on the outside. Because they say, don't they, revenge is a dish best served cold. That's what they say on these films. In other words, some people with anger in their heart aren't necessarily emotional people, but they say, okay, I'll get even. I'll bide my time. And they carry that with them. So anger is a very important uh, thing according to Jesus. It will grieve the Holy Spirit. And, um, and, and look at this, the next word it says, it says, whoever says to his brother, rakar, worthless, shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says you fool shall be danger, shall be in danger of hell fire. You see, again, the spirit and the letter. The letter of the law said you can think, well, it didn't, the letter, if you followed the letter, the Pharisees were saying, you can think whatever you want about somebody, you can treat them whatever you want to do in your heart and make up reasons to do it, just don't kill them. If you do kill them, well, what will happen is you'll be taken to the external law courts and the law courts will bring you to trial and you will be judged guilty or not guilty and punished on the earth for murder. And Jesus says, you know what? There's something that is even more powerful than human law courts. And he says, you fool, you shall be in danger of hell fire. The word for fool... The second word we've had, rakar, now we've got the second word, fool, is more in the Greek. From where we get the word moron, more. And that literally means a fool or an idiot. And so Jesus says, look, you're talking about external murder. You're talking about external courts. Well, that's a very low level of righteousness. Remember, we're looking at a righteousness that exceeds. That's a very low level of righteousness. You know, I think even we would say, well, we hope not many people we meet will, will be accused of murder. Even, even the world in a civilized society looks at murder with horror, doesn't it? It's a very low level of righteousness just to say, okay, when it comes to, to, to treating people, just don't murder them. And Jesus says it's a low level of righteousness. It's an external righteousness that's judged externally. But I'm bringing you something of the spirit. I'm speaking about what's going on in your heart. And I want to say that what's going on in your heart is what's most important. And you would never get to the place where you would commit violence, even violence, let alone murder. You would never get to the place of violence if in your heart you dealt with anger when it first arose. And he says, you fool, you shall be in danger of hell fire. And the word for hell there is Gehenna. There's different words used in the New Testament for hell. One of the Greek words is Hades. And, but here, Jesus is using the Jewish word for, he, for a Jewish word for hell, Gehenna. And Gehenna was a dump just outside Jerusalem where they used to burn all the worthless rubbish. And so at night time, you would, you would see 
uh, from Jerusalem, you would see the place of Gehenna, and it would be burning. And it, and it was always burning. It was burning rubbish through the night. It was burning rubbish through the day. And so Gehenna was a, a great picture of hell because it was a place of worthlessness, a place where worthless objects, worthless rubbish was taken out and burnt and perished. And Jesus said, you fool, you shall be in danger of Gehenna. Well, what does this mean? Is Jesus saying that as spirit-filled Christians, uh, if we get angry or we've got bitterness in our hearts, that we're in danger of going to hell? I've heard some preachers actually preach that. I remember one preacher many, many years ago come and preach at Kensington Temple. And he preached on this about having anger in your heart. And that if you have anger in your heart, Jesus made it plain. You're in danger of hellfire. And so anybody that's got anger in their heart right now that's not dealt with, you're not saved. And should you die right now, you're going to hell. He preached this to us. And then he made up some story or or related some story that couldn't be verified about a woman who apparently died. And when she died, she went to hell. And she didn't understand why she was in hell. And an angel told her, you're in hell because you had anger against your husband. She then apparently came back to life and uh, dealt with her anger. And, uh, and, you know, and and it was meant to be a message to the world. Well, if that's the case, we're all finished. All of us. Finished. And I remember at the end of this service, it was at Kensington Temple. At the end of this service, this very famous preacher made an altar call. And nearly the whole of the... I was seeing elders uh, and, and, you know, we didn't have cells in those. I was seeing, you know, leaders and pastors coming forward, getting saved. Well, of course. Of course. Because they were, they, they, were, they, they were dealing with issues of the heart, you know. And, and he turned to me. Colin wasn't there that day. I was like caretaking. I was, very young. I was quite young at the time, so I didn't... He turned to me and just said... Isn't that amazing? Look at all those people being saved. I didn't say it because it wasn't my place. I would have done today. Uh, but I was, well, yeah, and shouldn't we be down there too? <laughs> now, wh- what does this mean? Well, it means a number of things. And uh, the first thing I, w- I want to say about this is this. Is that God hates sin of all kinds. And in order to understand God's grace and love for us, we have to understand how much he hates sin. The greater your understanding of how much God hates sin, the greater your appreciation of God's forgiveness and grace in your life. Because if God wasn't worried about sin, some people say, oh, I'm going to heaven. I know I'm going to. Well, why are you going to heaven? Well, I don't need Jesus. God will let me in heaven. Why? Well, I'm not a bad person, really. I mean, we've all made mistakes, haven't we? As if... They weren't so bad, and God wasn't too worried about sin. But do you know that if Jesus hadn't died on the cross, well, let me ask you, what, would, what sin would be enough to cause your condemnation if Jesus hadn't died for you? What sin? Would you have to commit murder to go to hell? Or what sin? I tell you, this sin would be enough. Without the grace of God, without the forgiveness and the working of the Spirit, this sin would be enough. One anger in your heart. To say, to call someone out of your heart a fool or a worthless is enough 
for you to enter into eternal punishment forever. It's enough. Why? Because God is holy. He is holy. All sin matters to him. And, and we're not like him. We were born into a fallen world and we are fallen creatures. We were brought up in sin. But God, God is exalted. He is holy, holy, holy. And so the tiniest, just the smallest sin that you could ever imagine, even if you only did it once, and you couldn't only do it once because until you meet Jesus, you're a sinner by nature, is enough to be justly punished for eternity. You hear what I'm saying? So at that level, to those that he's speaking at that level, but of course, we who believe... We've already passed from judgment to life. I've already told you today that I don't go before God in my own righteousness. Whose righteousnesses are we in? Jesus. I didn't pass the law myself. I couldn't pass the law, but Jesus passed the law on my behalf. Jesus passed the test and gave me the grade. So I just go, Father, thank you, I'm your child. Thank you that even though I'm a working process, uh, even if I'm doing well or doing bad, if I'm backslidden or I'm, I'm on fire for you, it doesn't really matter because I just believe in Jesus. And look, here's my grade. He passed the test. I believe he passed the test and therefore I've got the grade. So this isn't talking about, about the spirit-filled person losing his salvation because he got angry. That, 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 would, that would be ridiculous. But without Christ and his cross, it would be enough for you to be punished. But imagine the shock on those that he was speaking. Remember, you've always got to look at the Sermon on the Mount, two audiences. The audience that were there, that Jesus has said, you obey the law. You obey the law. The law has not yet been fulfilled you obey the law. That was the audience he was speaking to right there. But he was also speaking to the audience of the spirit-filled church that are under grace and not law. This is a righteousness of grace. This is a righteousness that surpasses the law. That's why he's not teaching. He's teaching the Pharisees, you know the law, but I've got something better. It's called grace, living by love with spirit-filled, spirit-filled living. When we move to verse 23, we still see this uh, anger issues dealt with. And anger has many forms. It's not all furious shouting. As I've said, sometimes somebody's anger can be quite chilled, chilling, and cold. But behind all of this unrighteous anger is these two words, raka and, uh, and more, especially raka worthless. Someone becomes your enemy. Someone becomes worthless in your sight. You might not say the words, but hatred in your sight, you want to get back to them. You'd like them to be removed in one way or the other, brought down, you know, their reputation murdered, this type of thing. But he moves on and he says in verse 23, therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar, And there remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother and then and come and offer a a gift. Wow, this is powerful. Remember, these are principles. Jesus is speaking about our heart and saying, look, you're angry with someone and it's out of order. And at the root of that anger is, is your attitude. You're treating the person as if they're empty and worthless. 
And all you can think is what they're doing to you or what they're saying or what they're not doing. And you've ceased to see that person as, as a proper human being with dignity and value. You step in their shoes for a while and get your context back. This isn't just an object of your hate. This is a human being. And you need to rectify that. Now, that's a righteousness that is better than just not committing murder, isn't it? And then he moves on and he says, look, this even affects your worship. Remember, there's two audiences here, those before Pentecost and those after. So he says, leave, he speaks about leaving your gift at the altar. So to someone under the law, they know what that means. They, it's a sacrifice. It's going to the temple and offering your sacrifices to God. And part of your worship under the law was, was to take sacrifices for various reasons and sacrifice them to God. Of course, we know in the New Testament that we don't do that anymore. There's only, been, there's only one sacrifice needed, and that was the sacrifice of Jesus. So this is talking really about what happens when we come to worship God. When we worship him in our cell groups or, in our, or by ourselves, and we come into the presence of the Lord, and we begin to worship him in spirit and in truth. And here, what, um, what, what Jesus is saying is, look, you can't worship God when you've got unresolved issues with other people that you know that you should. Okay? You can't worship God when you know there's something that you need to put right with someone else. And one thing I have seen, been around the church long enough, church in general, is especially if you're in leadership and sometimes you're involved in people's disagreements. And uh, the thing about people that are like this is that Kensington Temple Church building helps people like this unwittingly because we have a balcony and we have a uh, ground floor. And I have known at times people fall out with one another who used to sit together and they'll come to church and one will sit downstairs and one will sit upstairs. Or, or with multiple services, I've known people that have come to church together who are friends who have fallen out and go to different services. It's amazing how you can avoid someone at Kensington Temple if you choose to. Unless they're on the platform, then you just have to, go, have to sort it out, don't you? But it's amazing how you can... Uh, I've, known, I've known people... This is the truth. I'm going to be honest with you. I've known people get divorced at Kensington Temple. Well, not, we don't have <laughs> divorce services. So not divorced. Like, <laughs> it just sounded like they, you know, you know, we have 10 people that are coming to the divorce service. I have known people who have been part of Kensington Temple... Divorce and sit in different parts of the church. Divorce, live in separate, going their own way, divorced, and yet still coming to church and sitting in different parts. So I'm just giving, I've known people lift their hands in the air and worship like, well, you thought they were about to get raptured, but you know the nastiness that that person is doing behind the scenes. The nastiness, the anger, and the... And so th this, is, this is very pertinent. But what God is saying is this. Is God is saying, you can't live like that. Now, if it was a righteousness of the Pharisees, it wouldn't really matter, would it? Because well, I haven't killed anyone. And here you are, and you're worshipping, because it's all outward. And with those examples I gave to you, it's all outward, isn't it? An outward show. Don't, they're not really dealing with the issues of the heart. They're just coming and they think everything's all right. And they're deceiving themselves. 
and they're worshipping God like nothing's wrong, but something is wrong. We'll see throughout the Sermon on the Mount, when we look at even the Lord's Prayer, forgive those uh, that trespass against you, so that you can be forgiven. You know, blessed are the merciful, what will they get? Mercy. So when you forgive, you get a flow of forgiveness. When you're merciful, you get a flow of God's mercy in your life. So this is what, this, this is what Jesus is talking about. So we can see the Beatitudes here. This is, this is saying, look, if you're living as a merciful, as a peacemaker, blessed are the peacemakers, then you're not going to stand there with your hands in the air and worship the Lord and think it's all about you and God when actually, when God judges your spirituality, there's a strong case to... to to say that when God judges your spirituality, he doesn't time you to see how much of your Bible you've read or how many hymns you've sung or how many services you've gone to or how long your prayer time has been. There's a strong case in me that when God judges your spirituality, the first thing he does is see how you treat your neighbor. See how you treat your neighbor. But often in modern Christianity, we are so focused on me and God that, oh, me and God, I spent four hours in prayer. Yeah, but... How's your relationships with people around you? This is what this is talking about. Don't give me the vertical, says the Lord, until you're dealing with the horizontal. Put things right first. You're there singing and praising, and I'm there, the Lord is saying, saying, when are you going to sort that out? When are you going to deal with that? And, and that means, and, and, and what the, the characteristic of someone who is at the altar and goes, someone's got something against me. I can solve that. What is that? Humility, isn't it? Humility to say, actually, I'm going to sort this out. I'm going to leave, I'm going to, I'm going to leave the altar. I'm going to go. I'm going to ring that person. I'm going, to, I'm going to make amends. That's the worship that God is looking for. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the humble. Why? Because they're not going to stand there like a Pharisee saying, oh, I worship you, Lord. When they have got broken relationships that they could do something about. Now, having said all that, I am aware that sometimes there are certain individuals you can't do anything about. There are certain individuals that as much as you reach out to them, they will not reach back. I'm aware of that. And you, you, you can't in the end be responsible for what somebody else does, can you? But that is not a loophole to get out of. You can look at your heart and ask the Holy Spirit... And, and don't just say, Lord, well, they won't. There's things that we can do. And often, the things that we can do can be humiliating. Can be humiliating. It can be embarrassing. We have to step down from our pride. And this, this brings, it, it's like, this is, this is love one another. And this brings me to um, uh, the final s- section on this anger. The next, the next verse, 25 having been reconciled to your brother. Now, agree with your adversary quickly while you're on the way with him, lest your adversary deliver you to the judge, the judge hand you over to the officer, and you be thrown into prison. Assuredly, I say to you, you will by no means get out of there until you've paid the last penny. Now, what's this about? Well, we've looked at anger in the heart and how it's a rakah, how it's idiot, how it's attitude towards people is murderous in the heart of worthlessness. We've looked at worshipping God and not putting things right first and what God thinks about that. But now this is talking about what happens 
to us when we don't pursue reconciliation. And, and what is this talk? The character of this person is a peacemaker, isn't it? Blessed are the peacemakers. You see, it's an illustration, an example, not a law. It's an illustration. It's like Jesus saying, it's like if you're at worship and you, there's things that you need to put right with someone. A peacemaker would do that. A meek person would do that. A merciful person would do that. It's like if you were, uh, had an argument with somebody and it was escalating and it looked like you were gonna, it was going to end up at the, at the law court and you were hardened and, you, and, and you're so hardened towards one another that you're going to have to have a judge to sort it out. It's like that. Now, if you were somebody with the, the, the fruit of the Spirit, you would try and stop this escalating. You know, when you see sometimes fightings and, 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 uh, and falling out, and you watch falling out and relationships being broken, and you see how at so many different times it could have been put right. But it escalated, it escalated, it escalated. How, how does somebody ever get to a place of divorce? It wasn't like that in the beginning. Something escalates and escalates and escalates. Again, in this passage, you know, you can do everything in this passage to try and stop it from going to court. But if that person wants to take you to court, what can you do? Do you hear what I'm saying? So, so it, but it's, it's what you can do. And more importantly, not just what you can do. It's your attitude to the situation. Okay? Like I said, you can only do what you can do. You can't make others do what they're meant to do. But you can do what you can do. And so here, this, this is sort of like warning against the self-righteousness that you want your day in court. Right, she says this, he says that. And we're going to have our day in court. And I'm going to get to court, or whatever way that is, whatever church court, whatever it is, and I'm going to see your face rubbed in the ground. And I'm going to get my justice. I'm going to get my victory. And I'm going to be pronounced righteous in that situation. It's amazing how self-righteous religious people can be. And the problem with the Pharisees is that they were self-righteous. They thought that they were. They never looked into their hearts. They assumed that they were always right. But here's a person that wants to, wants to deal with it, is ready to deal with their resentment. Proverbs 18, verse 19. Proverbs 18, verse 19 says, An offended brother is more unyielding than a fortified city. Defensiveness, resentment, pride, these things. Do you know sometimes, sometimes it's worth losing the battle to follow Jesus. Sometimes it's, you fight for your reputation. You know, sometimes your reputation's not worth fighting for. Sometimes it's not. Sometimes those that know you know you. You know, you, you have to, you, but people are so... So often we want to, vindication is mine, says the Lord. When we, and I'm going to close now, when we go to um, chapter 6, which isn't too far away, it's going to help us with all that we're learning right now. Because chapter 6 basically says, just trust the Father. Trust the Father for your food. Trust your Father for your clothes. Trust your Father to make things right. Trust your Father in prayer. In other words, Everything that we do and we say in chapter 6, you'll see, we do it unto the Father. 
And that's a great liberating thing. Instead of trying to justify yourself, instead of trying to deal with your enemies, you can love them. How can anybody love their enemy? Because you trust the situation to your father. He's bigger than it. But if you don't trust your father, you're going to have to deal with your enemy yourself. And you'll end up doing it in the fleshly way. So these examples are are wonderful examples of how somebody in the Beatitudes or the Spirit-filled Christian or disciple, the sort of attitudes they'll have in this and other areas. And we're going to go to some other areas. We've got the sexual area that we'll come to um, next week. We've got um, relationship areas, oaths, eye for eye, retribution, and loving your neighbor. And then we're going to go into chapter 6, which says the way to do all of this is by just holding the hand of your father and trusting him. Trusting him. And when you trust the father and take things to him in prayer... You won't have to deal, you don't have to be angry, you don't have to do all of these things. You'll be free from all those things forever. So that's where we're going. When we come back, uh, actually next week is a special Sunday because it's the Queen's Jubilee. Um, and Dudley's going to be speaking at this service on, I think, a, a, a parable of Jesus, that it, one of the parables of Jesus. And, then, and I'm on holiday. And then I'll be back the next Sunday And we're going to continue with this righteousness that exceeds the Pharisees. And we're going to have a look at the others in this chapter and continue. That's where we're going to do with that. Thank you, Christian.